Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. This conversation is with Professor Brett Wilson, who has composed the first English translation of the classic and controversial novel from late uh, Ottoman context, Nur Baba. This novel presents an engaging and often humorous account of the intrigues and activities of a Bektashi Sufi group in Istanbul and its environs. It offers a fascinating picture of a modernist critique of Sufism in this context. Wilson's translation is both lyrical and captivating and will make for an excellent resource for courses on Sufism and Islam more broadly. Here is my conversation with Professor Brett Wilson. Okay, welcome, uh, uh, Brett, to New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And congratulations on this really uh, wonderful achievement, uh, a translation of uh, Nur Baba. Um, so uh, before we get into the conversation, I uh, believe this must be your first time on the New Books Network. So we have a tradition to have authors uh, talk about how they got into the field. So could you just, just before we get into Nur Baba and this translation, could you say a bit, little bit about how you got into uh, the study of Islam and your story, your journey? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Sharli. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I got into this field uh, basically because I took some great classes as an undergraduate at the University of South Carolina with Ken Perkins. And because of that, I decided to study abroad and ended up spending a year uh, in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, where I learned Turkish, became fascinated by Ottoman history, Turkish history, uh, and Islam in that context. And to make a long story short, I just kept going in that direction. It it never stopped. And, and here I am today. Um, I studied after that. I went to Duke University, uh, where... I studied with Bruce Lawrence and Ibrahim Musa, and I met you, uh, <laughs> and uh, have a lot of great memories from that time. Uh, and uh, after the PhD, I taught at McAllister College for a number of years, and and recently my my path took me to to Europe, and have been teaching in Budapest and now in Vienna for the past uh, eight years. Great. So um, I thought maybe as a way to begin our conversation, uh, you know, we're discussing the translation of a really interesting and engaging novel, and we don't want to give too much away either. As part of this conversation, this will be a little different from other monographs that we usually talk about. But perhaps you could just give a brief sense to our listeners about um, 
the the broad theme of this of this novel uh, and its context of uh, late the late ottoman context uh, what is this novel broadly about and what is the context in which it is composed absolutely so uh, the novel is a starts out as a kind of classic story of a spiritual quest uh, there's a young man who uh, is interested in a Sufi lodge in Istanbul, which is a Bektashi Sufi lodge. And he's hesitant to go there, but one of his relatives takes him there. And the novel tells his story of being initiated in the lodge, of spending time there, uh, participating in its ceremonies, uh, and also covers a lot of his perceptions about what happens there. Alongside that, uh, the main character is actually not the narrator, but uh, this female relative of his, and she also joins the lodge together with him, uh, is initiated into the Bektashi order, and she becomes uh, deeply in love with the, the leader of the lodge, the sheikh, whose name is Nur Baba. And it's, it's a story of... Uh, attraction, seduction, uh, and uh, along the spiritual quest, I would say. Um, so I don't think there's too many spoilers, Sher Ali. I mean, maybe the ending is it could be a spoiler, but otherwise, I think we can talk about just about anything in there. Uh, the context of the composition of the novel is that it's written in the 19-teens uh, in Istanbul, primarily, possibly also uh, in Switzerland, the author Jakub Kadrikara Osmanoglu uh, was uh, from a very distinguished family, uh, which was very powerful uh, in the Ottoman Empire. And he's from a period in which the family had kind of declined and uh, was not so glorious as before. And a lot of his novels and writing deal with the social tensions and crises of late Ottoman and early Turkish Republican society. And so this novel's written uh, at a time of great change during the, what's called usually the Young Turk period. He begins to write it around 1913, uh, and it's published first in newspapers in 1921, uh, and then as a book, uh, as a novel in 1922. Um, and this is still the Ottoman Empire. It's not the Turkish Republic. Uh, and this is a context in which intellectuals like Yakub Kadri were making all kinds of new critiques of religion, and particularly of Islam, I should say, uh, in the public sphere, in new venues like novels, newspapers, journals, etc. So it was a time of great intellectual upheaval. Um, the novel was greeted with a great deal of controversy, as I explained in the introduction. Uh, first, the novel was banned. Uh, then there was a film made from the novel. Then the film was banned. Uh, and then uh, a few years later, it becomes a quite popular with the foundation of the Turkish Republic. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a novel written at a very dynamic time, uh, this late Ottoman period when the empire is seen to be falling apart and does fall apart. 
and a new republic is is being imagined as uh, people like Yakub Kadri uh, start to imagine what Turkish identity is, start to critique traditional leaders, Islamic institutions like Sufi lodges, etc. So you mentioned in the introduction uh, to the novel, a really nice introduction that uh, about the controversy surrounding this novel that you also mentioned a bit right now. I thought there was a fascinating no- uh, narrative with which you begin uh, the book. Um, and if it is okay, if you could share that with li- the listeners of how even in the Turkish Republic and with someone like Ataturk, the controversy surrounding this novel uh, was quite palpable and this very interesting encounter between the author of this novel and Ataturk that you talk about at the beginning of the of the of the introduction. Could you share that narrative with our listeners just to get a sense of the degree of controversy this novel has created and perhaps still creates? Absolutely. So a lot of the discussion around the novel was whether or not it described actual people, real life people. And uh, Ataturk and others had heard this uh, this kind of rumor that it was based on the life of this particular Bektashi sheikh in Istanbul uh, who uh, happened to be in Ankara visiting. And in 19, somewhere in the 1920s or maybe even 1930, we're not exactly sure, uh, Ataturk invites this Bektashi sheikh to visit him at the presidential residence in Ankara. Uh, and he also invites at the same time Yakub Kadri Karosmalu to come, and he puts them in this kind of awkward situation uh, where they have to to talk to each other and be in the same room after uh, Yakub Kadri has published this really uh, critical, even uh, defamatory novel about about a Bektashi sheikh. Uh, and so it's funny because Ataturk really hoped that this Bektashi leader would be exactly the same as the novel, the character in the novel, that he would be great at singing, that he would be a kind of a, a party man, that he would be uh, full of life and, and so forth. And he basically is, is disappointed that this Bektashi leader seems to be a, a rather normal person and is not as flamboyant as the novel makes him out to be. And, and Yakub Kadri basically says, you know, well, he was he was the raw material of the novel and he shares some things with the character, but not all of them. And he later he later wrote that he, he is a womanizer, uh, as as was depicted in the novel, and that he was also not very educated. We see numerous examples of this in the novel where uh, the the narrator makes fun of the writings of the sheikh, especially of his poetry and his songs that he writes, which he says don't really have, uh, don't follow the meter properly, don't have a very good flow, uh, etc. Um, and so, it kind of this incident with Ataturk in the presidential mansion with the author and the Bektashi sheikh really show that this novel was such a, a source of public discussion and controversy that it even reached the highest offices of state, right? If, if you're an author and you get invited to the White House uh, or the Kremlin to discuss your novel, uh, you can say that that novel has made uh, a pretty important impact. And that was the case here. And so I included that story to kind of you know, make it clear to the, the reader that what they're about to encounter was something that was on the mouths uh, and on the minds 
of uh, some of the greatest intellectuals and the most powerful people in the country at the time. Let's perhaps think a bit and talk a bit about uh, a couple of the characters in the novel, and then we can look at a couple of themes as well. So let's begin with the main, I mean, uh, uh, one of the key protagonists, which is Noor Baba himself. What is your reading of, you know, I found it very interesting that on the one hand, you know, he seems a bit eccentric and, uh, you know, uh, sensuous and so on. Um, But on the other hand, he does have some properties and characteristics of quote-unquote traditional Sufi masters in the kind of charisma that he attracts and, you know, a certain kind of master-disciple relationship in some ways, which is operative here. So what do you make of this character in terms of how the author is trying to portray him as, but then as a translator, what kind of a figure, uh, uh, how, how how do we conceptualize this figure as a Sufi master? What are some of the key tensions maybe inhering in this character for you, um, the character of Noor Baba? Sure, that's a fantastic question. So I would say the character draws on some themes from the late Ottoman period, one of which was that the main critique of Sufism was that the leaders were charlatans. Uh, they could be charlatans of different kinds. Uh, they could be uh, people who were interested in money, interested in power, interested in women, uh, a variety of things. And uh, we can see that Yaqub Qadri really drew on these themes in creating the character because he basically says that Nur Baba was all of these things. <laughs> now, at the same time, you're right. He, he is a charismatic figure. He has an amazing voice. Um, he brings the, the disciples together in a very commanding way. Um, but his, his, his way of bringing them together is actually uh, too powerful. It's so powerful that it, it's damaging because the female disciples almost to a fault fall in love with him, uh, have uh, romantic relationships or affairs with him, and usually end up giving all of their wealth to him, or at least a large part of it. And we see many of these characters end up badly in the novel. There's one who, who jumps out of a window and, and breaks her legs and is paralyzed uh, for life because he stopped loving her. Uh, we have another who has kind of lost all of her money because of him. Uh, we have several others who leave and destroy their families because they're obsessed with the sheikh. Um, and so... He, he does have some, let's say, leadership qualities in terms of leading rituals, in terms of being a good musician. Uh, but for Yaqub Qadri, he lacks the important things. He, for example, he, when he asks him questions about Sufi concepts or uh, rituals or art, he's always disappointed with the answers that uh, the sheikh gives. Uh, and so on almost every level, he's, he's disappointing for the author. Um, now, in terms of tensions that we see in him, um, yeah, I mean, I think there are, are several things that we could point out, uh, but I think they mostly, they mostly go in the direction that Yaqub Qadri has, has led us to, that is, um, 
he's a negative character. Uh, the tensions aren't really apparent because we don't get to hear much from Nurbaba himself. We just see his actions and we hear uh, what the narrator interprets them as. Uh, but I think you're right that there there are a lot of tensions in the novel with regard to how it presents Sufism. Uh, the main one I would say is that the author begins with a very enthusiastic and positive attraction towards Sufism. He's very interested in Sufi philosophy. He's very interested in Sufi poetry and literature. Um, but the tension for him is his disappointment with the actual practitioners of Sufism that he encounters in early 20th century Istanbul. Um, and so I, I make a point in the introduction and, and, and elsewhere that this is really a symptom of the modern engagement with Sufism, which I would say is basically a romantic approach. And I think it characterizes a lot of the scholarship in our field about Sufism, um, which is often labeled as Orientalism um, or simply Romanticism. But the novel really shows that this tension is very much present in intellectuals of the period as well. They were attracted to the traditions and the intellectual repertoire, uh, the literature of Sufism, but they were not so excited about contemporary Sufis or especially the leaders uh, or the institutions, which they saw as, as harmful toward the family, toward society, towards progress. And I think that this is also the same theme that we see in a lot of scholarship on Sufism, uh, especially, I would say, the early generations of scholars, uh, A.J. Arbery, for example, and others who you might say have had a kind of Protestant approach to Sufism. They liked belief. They liked uh, the content, but they really didn't they really didn't care for items that they considered to be superstitious, such as uh, tomb visitation or uh, miracles or these sorts of things. So that comes through very clearly in the novel. And I think that's why the novel is very good for teaching uh, Sufism in, in classrooms and discussing this kind of romantic or, if you want, Orientalist dynamic that is a characteristic of the field. The other character that, of course, really deserves discussion and is a very fascinating and, again, some very interesting tensions in here in this character as well is that of Nigar, uh, who initially is uh, hesitant to join this order, but then eventually, of course, is enraptured uh, uh, with with love. And that's a theme I want to come back to in a moment, uh, the theme of love. But tell us a bit about this character, Nigar. Uh, who is she? What is the role that she plays in the novel? And what do you uh, see her character representing and some of the uh, uh, desires and tensions that this character embodies, the one of Nigar. Sure. Nigar is a, a very beautiful young woman. She is from a wealthy family that lives in a large mansion beside the Bosphorus. Uh, she's married and has several children. Um, but she's a very bored person. <laughs> in this comfortable uh, family life of, of wealth and prestige. Uh, but she has an aunt, let's say a somewhat uh, disgraced aunt, who attends this Sufi lodge and ultimately uh, invites her to come to it. 
and you're right at first she's reluctant to come uh, she plays hard to get and so forth she's initially a bit repulsed by the sheikh Nurbaba, uh, but then she is drawn in and she is initiated she begins a flirtation with Nurbaba that then becomes uh, a full-fledged romance uh, and then she enters uh, a state in which she is the let's say the most prestigious woman in the order because she is uh, in a relationship with Nurbaba but others around her warn her and and counsel her that this won't last forever and be careful and in the right because her relationship with Nurbaba changes over time as she ages and and I won't spoil it for you but uh, things things get dark for Nigar so what I think the character of Nigar communicates to the novel uh, is actually one of the main themes that the author wants to give us that is uh, women who leave the home, who become disciples of sheikhs, who don't spend all their time with their family, get manipulated. They get manipulated or they get used because uh, they are susceptible to falling in love. They're susceptible to be uh, pushed and pulled in every which way. Uh, and ultimately abused. And I think that's something that's going on in the period. Uh, this early, you know, early, early decades of the, of the 20th century were, uh, which, sorry, <laughs> this was a period in which uh, women were becoming more visible in public during the Young Turk period. They were getting more education. They were seen more in public, as we can see in photographs and art from the period. They were becoming writers. And in the minds of many people like Yakub Kadri, this was a threat to the family, a threat to society. They weren't quite sure uh, what to think about the more public roles that women were playing. And so I think this comes through very clearly in the novel, both in the character of Nigar, but also in many other female characters who are criticized for being away from the house, for leaving their children with nannies, uh, and for basically giving this uh, Bektashi Sufi sheikh uh, a place to control their lives. So I think that's the main message that Nigar, Nigar kind of conveys to us. Um, I don't know, Shirley, what do you think? What, what did you see when you read the novel? How does Nigar strike you? Well, as a conflicted person, certainly, uh, who's trying to navigate both family relations with her aunt and this new context that she's thrown into. And I think the ending, not giving anything away, also is quite poignant in the kind of uh, uh, the lack of resolution, you know, with which the novel ends. Uh, that, I think, is in some ways also characteristic of this character, uh, that there is this lack of resolution to these competing desires and, uh, and, and tensions that she embodies. I want to turn now to... Uh, the key, one of the key themes of this novel uh, that runs throughout the novel, which is that of love, intimacy, or muhabbat. Um, talk a little about you know that concept, uh, how that concept or that category operates in the novel, and why is it so important uh, to the uh, texture of this novel, this whole idea of love, intimacy, and muhabbat. 
Absolutely. So, of course, many of us will be familiar with with the idea of ashk in in Sufi poetry uh, and so forth, and this metaphor of love between uh, between the human being and God, often uh, expressed through different metaphors of of love th- between a man and a woman, uh, and and many others. But what happens in the novel is that the author plays with another concept of love, which is muhabbet. Uh, Ashk does not come up much in the novel. And he chooses muhabbet because that is a particularly important term in the Bektashi Sufi order. Um, muhabbet has several different meanings, and the entire novel plays with the concept and does it many different ways. So, for example, muhabbet means a kind of ceremony in which uh, people are having some drinks and, uh, and reciting poetry and talking around a banquet together. Um, but of course, it also means a certain kind of love or affection or intimacy. Uh, in Turkish, in common Turkish, not as a technical term, it can often mean just chatting, having friendly conversation. And the author wants to examine the relationship between Sufi metaphorical love for God uh, via um, this romantic relationship with the Sheikh. So we have many different female characters in the novel professing their muhabbet for Nurbaba, and they see it as a kind of way to divine love. So loving the Sheikh isn't just loving him, it's also engaging in a kind of divine uh, relationship intercourse of some sorts. The novel uses this word muhabbat something like 40 times. And it's one of the few terms that I did not translate in the novel because to do so would really lose a lot of the texture, and I try to alert the reader at different points. The novel also defines this concept in many different places, uh, in several different ways. And toward the end of the novel, Nigar comes to this kind of personal realization, understanding of what muhabbat is. And for her, it means to love no matter how much you suffer no matter what people do to you, no matter what comes your way, you love. You love others, you love the universe, uh, and you don't hold a grudge. And we also see the author uh, admiring this kind of love in some of the characters. Uh, There's another male character who many of the other members of the lodge make fun of, pick on, insult, but he's never bothered by these. And he never responds. He never shows irritation. Uh, And this is one of those instances where we see the author uh, admiring something of the ethos of this Bektashi Sufi order, which otherwise he he has a lot of critical things uh, to say about. Now, I think that's enough. I think that's just enough. Okay, terrific. Well, let's think a bit about um, uh, the reception of this novel. We've already discussed a bit the controversy it's created, etc. 
But uh, I find it interesting that on the one hand, there is this controversy, whether it caricatures the Bhaktashi Sufi tradition or not, and lampoons it or not. But then it also has a very um, long-running reception as a classic of uh, modern uh, Ottoman literature, etc., how do you account for that? The, what do you make about the what do you make of the reception of this novel? Is it the controversy that really has sustained it? Is it an articulation of a certain modernism that accounts for this reception, or there is a certain kind of a, a you know a rupture in what we might consider to be mainstream Sufism that accounts for it? Uh, how do you read the reception of this novel in its long running uh, uh, you know uh, uh, popularity uh, in some ways? Sure. So the controversy is important, um, but the controversy happened for a reason. And this is, I think, because of the unique position of the Bektashi Sufi order uh, at this time in history. Uh, And that's because the order was actually banned by the Ottoman Empire in 1826 and suppressed. But It went underground and actually was then tolerated for several decades by the empire. Uh, It was never officially legal again until the Turkish Republic. But in this period when the novel is being written, this is the, let's say, incubation period of Turkish nationalist ideas. And Turkish nationalist thinkers were looking in all sorts of places to find sources of Turkish culture that would be the content of Turkish national culture, something different than Ottoman or Islamic culture. And the Bektashi order had a long tradition of maintaining its literature and its rituals in Turkish language. And because of that, it offered a wide variety of texts and uh, resources from which to draw for building this new national literature, poetry, etc. Many of these thinkers were also kind of amateur anthropologists and or sociologists, and they thought that you could find some of the characteristics of the pre-Islamic Turk- Turkish nation in this order's rituals, uh, social practices, etc. For example, In Bektashi ceremonies, men and women both participate. Uh, This was promoted by many as a kind of evidence that Turkish society should be modern with uh, mixed gender, uh, public events, uh, a modern society where men and women do things together, right? This was a big theme of the early Turkish Republic as well. Promoting the, uh, promoting the unveiling of women, promoting women in professions, the education of women, etc. And so the Bektashi order had this unique position in nationalist thought, uh, which is probably why Yakub Kadri Carlos Manolou went and joined this order in the first place. He was probably uh, excited by these intellectual currents, which he and many other writers and thinkers at the time uh, were dealing with. So the novel's published in 22, but then just one year later, the Republic is established. And so this novel and this whole 
thinking of nas- about nationalist culture and what would be national culture takes on a new level of importance. Uh, and this novel is discussed really widely in, the, in 1925, 26, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and so it became enshrined. Now, it also has another reason, uh, Sher Ali, and that is because in 1925, the Turkish Republic banned Sufi orders uh, and banned uh, all institutions, practices, titles, clothing uh, associated with Sufism. And that meant that this novel took on a new meaning. Uh, it could now be read as a, as a critical, accurate portrait of how depraved, of how dangerous Sufi leaders were in society. And therefore, it became a justification for this legal regime of prohibiting Sufi orders uh, and also confiscating their properties. So the novel has all three of these, the controversy, uh, the nationalist angle, as well as this uh, issue with the prohibition of the Sufi orders. It's also a very engaging novel. <laughs> so I think that shouldn't be underestimated in terms of its success. Uh, Yakub Kadri is a very good writer. And after this novel, he wrote many others, uh, and they became part of the school curriculum in Turkey. So they're basically classics in the canon of modern Turkish literature. I want to turn to another character that I found really fascinating um, and different from Nigar, but also with a similar kind of oscillation between, um, you know, being rejected and being embraced and accepted at different moments in the novel. And that's, of course, uh, Madame Ziba. Uh, tell us a bit about who this character is. How is she related to Nigar and Nur Baba? And uh, what is the place of this character in terms of the, uh, the, the everyday workings of the lodge and other relationships that are entangled as a, in the course of this novel? And uh, 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 yeah, tell us a bit about this character, I think, which is quite fascinating and interesting uh, in the context of the novel. Yes, uh, Madame Ziba is the grand dame of the lodge. Uh, that is to say, she's the most powerful woman in the lodge, and that is because uh, she had a long romantic affair with Nurbaba, and her money funded the lodge, uh, made it into a viable institution, and she also comes from the same family as Nigar, obviously. She's her aunt. Uh, so this is a wealthy family, and uh, she's the the daughter of, of a high Ottoman statesman. They also have a, a nice mansion on the Bosphorus. And Nigar is interesting from a number of respects. Um, one is that she shows that, yes, women had powerful positions in the lodge, but the author plays with this and kind of shows us that that power is illusory, that in fact uh, they can be discarded whenever the sheikh wants uh, and that the sheikh will ultimately move on to new, younger, uh, wealthier women uh, when possible. So Nigar is interesting also, sorry, Nigar, Ziba is also interesting uh, because at the beginning of the novel, her 
relationship with Nurbaba has become somewhat sour. And she harbors a grudge with him for not being as close to her as, as he used to. And for this reason, she wants to get some kind of revenge on Nurbaba. And so she uses her niece, uh, Nigar, as a kind of uh, way of teasing and tempting and uh, playing with the sheikh's mind. At the same time, she's conflicted because she really still loves Nurbaba and she doesn't want uh, Nigar Hanam to become his new love. So we see this uh, rivalry between relatives uh, within the lodge over the love of the sheikh, over the place of prestige. And Ziba also is a character who... uh, say, contributes a lot to the lodge, but is then somewhat uh, drained by the lodge and actually leaves and is able to leave uh, without completely destroying her life. So these are some of the angles that I see, Sherali. Have you seen something else that that I should expound upon? No, that sounds great. That sounds terrific. Um, The other thing I wanted to ask you uh, about is um, the place of Istanbul, in this novel. Uh, as a reader, you really get a great sense of the architecture, geography, you know, these mansions in the Bosphorus, uh, where the lodges and where these people then eventually, uh, you know, uh, when they leave the lodge, where they reside. So there is a certain kind of a geography of Istanbul which pervades uh, this novel throughout. And you've also presented some very useful images in the context of the book, which which are very helpful. Um Tell us a bit about that. Uh, you know, when you were translating this book, it, it seems quite clear that you very deliberately made sure that the, I guess, the spatial imagery of this of this novel really comes through in translation. Uh, so tell us a bit about that, the, the, the space of the novel and the, the and, and, and the way in which it, you know, represents Istanbul and its significance uh, to uh, this novel a bit. Yeah, so a number of years ago, I... I went to the site where the lodge used to be um, and I took a bus and then I took a taxi and then I walked and it was shocking how high it was on a hill, uh, a hill on the Bosphorus, on the Asian side of the Bosphorus. Um, You go up and up and up, steep roads, uh, and you can really see how isolated it must have been uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, where this novel is based. Um, I think this, this spatial element is really interesting uh, for several reasons. Um, the one I want to comment on the most is where it takes place. So actually, the novel takes place in a very elite part of Istanbul. It takes place in the parts of Istanbul where wealthy people went and where Europeans went. Uh, there's not a single scene uh, in the novel that takes place in what we'd call like majority Muslim neighborhoods, right? So uh, you have these large mansions on the Bosphorus, and it's worth noting that many of the foreign, the residences of foreign ambassadors were were on the Bosphorus. Um, the major American university, uh, Robert College, then which then became uh, Bawazji University later, is there. Um, 
And so it's, it's interesting that it's mostly here and then in the quarter, which is called Pera, which is known as the European quarter of Istanbul in the 19th century. It was where many foreign embassies were located, uh, where nightlife was located, where a number of churches were and still are today. Uh, and so we see what the lives of these people would have been like, uh, where they would have gone shopping, how they would have made their way from here to there, usually with a ferry and then with a carriage uh, or just with a carriage. Uh, and it really helps us see several things also about the Bektashi Sufi lodges. Actually, none of them were located in within the old city walls. None of them were in old Istanbul. They were all uh, outside of, of the city um, proper, mostly on hills, top of hills, so somewhat isolated. Uh, and you, you see that throughout the novel, the characters are in isolated places, they're, they're in dark places, or they're on ferry boats, and so on. So I really like how the author describes the city in the novel. You see the beauty, you also see uh, the loneliness, you see the insufficiencies in certain places. Uh, but I think what comes through mostly is this beauty of the Bosphorus and the, the presence that that body of water has uh, on the lives of these people who are mostly, most of the characters we, that are dealt with a lot in the novel are uh, wealthy people who have mansions. And then we have a couple of other characters, right? We have uh, this celibate dervish uh, who is named Chinari, who shows us a completely different side. And we also have uh, Nurbaba, who comes from a very, very humble background. He's actually found as an orphan in central Anatolia and brought to Istanbul by the previous leader of the lodge. Uh, and I think that the author tries to make some kind of class commentary through the juxtaposition of these very humble and rough Sufis, who are the professional Sufis, let's say, the leader and this celibate dervish who actually lives in the lodge, and their interactions with elite Istanbulites who come for various reasons, but mostly for reasons that are presented as being somewhat illegitimate or, or not so ethical. That is, uh, A, to, to have a relationship with the sheikh, a, a romantic one, or B, to come for a kind of party. Uh, and these were uh, things that were happening in the late Ottoman period. Um, some Sufi lodges became kind of refuges from uh, late Ottoman absolutism. They became what some authors called dens of perdition, places where you could drink and party and so forth uh, without so much state surveillance of your activities. And uh, what we find is that the author often comment, comments negatively on this interaction between elites like Nigar uh, and uh, people like Nurbaba and Chinari. And I think what is mostly upsetting to the author is that there's a role reversal. That is, 
these wealthy, cultivated people should be at the top of society. But when they go to a Sufi lodge, they end up becoming dominated by uh, figures who come from humble backgrounds just because they have spiritual authority or charisma. And I think this is one of the ways in which the author understands Sufi lodges as being uh, chaotic for society, for social order, and for the family. It gives, uh, it gives these kind of humble figures a lot of power over people who should be elites, who should be in control. So the final question I want to ask you is about the the whole uh, craft of translation. This is a really lyrical English translation that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and it's an actually very enjoyable text. I should just mention that. And hence, it will work particularly well in different uh, class uh, settings and different courses. And you've, of course, written a lot about translation. Your first book was a magnificent book on Quran translation uh, in the context of uh, the Ottoman period and uh, modern Turkey. So uh, tell us about some of the decisions that you had to take as a translator, what you'd learned about this craft. Uh, um, uh, walk us through or tell us a bit about that process of translation. What was it like for you? What were some of the key challenges? And how did you try to overcome those challenges? Tell us a bit about what it was like to be a translator. Well, I'm very glad to hear that you you thought it was flowing and lyrical, Sher Ali, because... Uh... <laughs> I can tell you with with full confidence that uh, for many years it was unreadable and uh, it was painful to look at. Uh, And I would say it gave the the term wooden translation, you know, new resonance, (laughs) new meaning. Um, So, you know, I have no training in translation. Uh, I have only learned to translate by translating. And I began this project uh, at Duke University as an independent study in which I basically told uh, Erda Guknar, uh, our wonderful uh, teacher, mentor, and colleague there, uh, that I wanted to work on translations of this novel and would he be willing to sit down with me and go through them. And he agreed to very generously and we did that for a couple of years. Um, and you know, if, if you look back at those early translations, they are just horrible. Uh, and even, I would say, one year ago, six months ago, when I go back and look at th- those drafts, they're, they're still very, very difficult to read. So it took a long time to get to where it is now. Um, in terms of approach, in terms of difficulties, wow, where do we start? <laughs> um, we, can, we can talk about several things. Um, one would be technical terminology. There are really a lot of technical Sufi terms and even beyond that, technical Bektashi terms uh, that you have to decide what to do with. Um, I basically took an approach where I tried to translate as many of them as possible. But in certain cases, uh, I decided that we would just have to keep it in the original and add a footnote or add some kind of explanation in the text. Another challenge, poetry. The novel has quite a number of citations of poetry from famous Sufi poets, uh, from Fuzuli to uh, Nedim. Uh, and you know these are, are quite challenging. So I, I hope that those are, are relatively successful. 
I had fun translating them, but they were also the things that took the longest to 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 get smooth. Um, the author uses very very long sentences, which is common in Ottoman Turkish, and some translators decide to preserve those sentences. Um, I chose to break them up because in many cases they're they're difficult if not impossible to make them work really well um, another challenge would be titles so in Turkish it's very common to use uh, titles of relationships like sister brother father mother aunt uncle etc every time that, that that the name is used and in the first translations I included those titles but when you read it in English like that, it's, it sounds kind of ridiculous. And so I, I took the vast majority of those out and I, I either used them only on the first instance or uh, I used them consistently for characters who have a title name that's really distinctive or important to their identity. Um, these are all very debatable uh, choices, Shirley. Um, but in the end, the entire translation is, is a series of tough choices. And there's a kind of argument for preserving the original text as much as possible versus uh, doing something else with it. I would say, uh, I started with that mentality that I really wanted to preserve as much as possible. Um, but the longer I translated the less and less viable I felt that became. And I, and I thought it became unviable mostly because it was very uncharitable to the reader. And the reader will be someone reading in English, uh, not someone who's reading in Turkish. And the people who can read it in Turkish can read the original and it's, it's not a problem. So the reader, the recepting side is, is favored in this translation. Um, I had a lot of help as well, uh, as I, as you saw maybe in the acknowledgments. I couldn't have done this without my wonderful doctoral student, uh, Merve Demirkan. Uh, she went through the entire text after I had finished the complete draft and made so many improvements and found uh, quite a number of errors uh, that it was really a godsend uh, that she did that. And I have consulted virtually uh, every friend I have <laughs> that uh, works on, on Turkish language or Ottoman language uh, to ask different questions uh, over the years. Uh, this has taken you know, an unbelievable amount of time to finish uh, and it was probably a kind of uh, a misguided quest to do this. But uh, if you have enjoyed reading the novel, Shirley, then I'm very, very happy and it was all worth it. Well, no, this was, it really was. It was uh, just as a reader and also as an instructor, I'm really excited about teaching this. Uh, so as we're coming to the end of our time, Brett, could you share a bit with our listeners about what are you currently working on and what might be the next uh, book we might uh, expect from you or anticipate from you? Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm writing a book about Sufism in the early Turkish Republic. And it focuses on the suppression and abolition of the Sufi orders in 1925. Uh this is an event that we hear about in many different histories of the Middle East or histories of Islam or Sufism. 
Um, but we really lack a detailed, uh, in-depth study uh, of this issue. So hopefully by the end of the year, uh, I can finish this uh, manuscript up and uh, send it in. And it's obviously closely related uh, to the themes that we looked at today in Nurbaba. Uh, so I'm hoping that it will, will be a fresh take on secularism uh, in, the, in the Muslim world in the early 20th century, which kind of looks closely at how uh, Sufism, Sufi institutions, Sufi culture uh, made the transition from the, the age of empire to the age of the nation state and how it played in a sometimes uh, unacknowledged but rather important role in the secularities that emerged in, in Turkey as well as in other uh, Middle Eastern or Muslim majority states. So that's where I'm at now, Shirley. Nur Baba, uh, published by Rutledge, uh, Horn of the Press 2023, and translated by Professor Brett Wilson. Brett, thank you so much for your time and for these uh, wonderful uh, uh, responses and commentaries in the novel and uh, and for composing this really, really uh, terrific uh, translation that I'm sure all of us will benefit from. Thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network. I really enjoyed speaking with you, Charlie, and I look forward to doing it again. So this was my conversation with Professor Brett Wilson about his translation of Noor Bab. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.